Hello and welcome to University. I'm your host, Joe Fisher, and in this series, I'll be speaking to some of our remarkable researchers from the University of Southampton. We'll discuss their work, how they have had to adapt during this year, and most importantly, getting to know the person behind the research over a virtual cuppa. This week, I'm joined by Dr. Denise Baden. Denise is an Associate Professor of Sustainable Business at the University of Southampton. Her research looks into sustainable hairdressing and she's running several projects, including Green Stories. She's also written a musical based on the life of Fidel Castro and the Cuban Revolution. So the orchestra have warmed up and the curtain rises. Let's meet Denise, the person behind the research. Thank you so much for joining me today, Denise. Do you have a cup of tea ready for our chat? Um, Well, I've got a glass of water. That'll do. (laughs) (laughs) That'll do. Staying hydrated, it's probably better for you than tea, to be honest. So that's probably a good move. Would you like to introduce yourself quickly for our our listeners today? Okay, yes. uh, I'm Denise Baden, Professor of Sustainable Business at the University of Southampton. And could you give an overview of your main research at the university? Well, I started actually years ago in the Department of Psychology. Okay. And then I ended up in the business school via doing some research on entrepreneurial personality and at the time it was about 20 years ago I was a bit of a green activist I'd set up the green group to try and pressure the university into improving its recycling policies and energy policies and so on so when they needed a new business ethics lecturer they said well you keep harassing us (laughs) on our environmental credentials do you want to do that and I'd had a bit of a background years ago in political philosophy and some of the ideas I could build on that plus my green interests and I'm very much about as well not trying always to preach to the converted looking for ways to engage the broader public and other businesses and organizations in sustainable practices. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. How have you found that kind of sort of trying to speak to people who may not already be socially aware and, and aware of sort of the need for sustainability in, in all areas of life? Well, in a way, you've got to look for the win-wins. So I don't think motivating people through fear or guilt is particularly effective or, okay. or nice, but you don't really need to because most of the practices that are sustainable and that are good for the environment are also good for us and have other benefits. So there's this myth that being green is more expensive. Well, it's much less expensive Mm. (laughs) in most cases. It usually involves using less. So, for example, I did this project with sustainable hairdressing, and I thought, well, I'll engage with hairdressers because... Actually, washing your hair is a very carbon-intensive activity. You're using lots of hot water, lots of chemicals, okay. uh, lots of energy. And heating hot water, people don't realise, it's one of the most energy-intensive things we do in our homes. Okay. So, you know, you can leave the TV on all day or the computer on all day. I mean, that's not great. But if you, you know, shower for, you know, 10, 20 minutes rather than just a couple of minutes, that's really going to push your bills through the roof and use a lot of energy and have a very high carbon footprint. So knowing that, I thought hairdressers are good people to target because that's where we get our habits from. Yeah. And there were so many win-wins there because, you know, your hair doesn't like a lot of hot water or chemicals or hot air 
neither does the planet, neither does your bills. So finding ways to get good hair with, you know, fewer shampoos, less hot water and so on is a win-win for everybody. It's a win-win for the hairdressers. It saves them money. It's better hair condition and so on. So it's not been too hard. And a lot of green products, really, they're using less materials. So if they're more expensive than other products, that's greenwashing. That's businesses exploiting Mm. our green consciences. It's not because they are inherently more expensive. It's normally the, the, the opposite. That's really that is really interesting because you do get sort of put off by by the sort of products you find in supermarkets and shops that sort of say oh it's a sustainable green sort of more natural product yes. but it always seems so much more expensive so it's 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 good to know that following that route and following that sort of lifestyle is the best way and and should be cheaper as well you just need to know where to look I suppose so yeah there's there's no reason why sustainable practices should be more expensive absolutely. sustainable hairdressing um, projects that you did how have you managed to affect change in how hairdressers sort of go about their business is it have you sort of offered advice and new ways of doing things I understand that there's some training involved that you sort of organize as well so how how has that gone and how does that work well, it started about seven, eight years ago. We did this green salon makeover where we got hairdressers and we put to them the environmental challenges and we just said, how might you deal with that? Because we wanted to get an idea what practices and changes they would accept. Mm. And from that, that's where we discovered the win-wins. <laughs> and a lot of them said, well, there's no point telling us. You've got to get the trainees because they come from hairdressing college. They leave the tap on all the time. They use far too much product and shampoo, which costs us money and isn't good for the hair. So our next project, then we got funds to work with trainers. So we thought, well, train the trainers. Yeah. And then you can cascade that down. So we did uh, workshops at continual professional development workshops with City and Girls, with VTCT, uh, with the Hair and Beauty Industry Authority. So I think we probably reached most trainers across the, the UK and Northern Ireland. And then we thought, we can't keep doing this, we've run out of money, <laughs> it's expensive. <laughs> so we tried to take all the learning we'd done in that and put it on a virtual salon okay. and then make it freely available to hairdressers and they can go on. And it's, quite, it's almost like a fun game where they learn about sustainability and sustainable practices while trying to find sort of little things. It takes under an hour to do. And then if they do that, they can get a sustainable stylist certificate. Okay, brilliant. And then once the salon has got its stylists certificated, then they can apply to be a sustainable salon. So it's a relatively cheap and effective way to ensure that everyone in that salon who's got the certificate has been trained and at least exposed to the knowledge. So it's not a formal, we'd go there and test or follow up. That would require huge resources. But we can at least say, we know your stylists have been exposed to all the relevant information. Do they have to change the products that they use, perhaps, or washing hair less, the way that they sort of dry hair or dye hair? Is there a way in every sort of process that hair salons have that they can adapt even slightly to be more sustainable? So a lot of the things that salons do, we can also do at home. So one of the things we talk about is things like eco shower heads. So what they do is they kind, you can attach them to your shower head and they put air in with the water. So that reduces water flow by 50%. And it also feels lovely. It gives a lovely silky feeling. So it's a much nicer experience. So salons like that. 
quite often you might have a salon and they'll say, oh, we've got four sinks and if they're using one, we can't use this one because of the water pressure issues. Mm. They'll get those and then all four sinks will work. Fantastic. So it's a no-brainer because it pays back within a couple of months in terms of bills. We talk generally about trying to use less hot water because the hotter the water, the more expensive, okay. the more energy, but also the harsher it is on the hair and skin. So tepid rather than hot showering once rather than rinse and repeat so a lot of these things are habits left over from decades mm. ago so in the 50s women used to go to the hairdresser once a year get it styled stuffed full of product you know <laughs> you could knock on the hair and get an echo you know <laughs> and then of course they wouldn't wash it all week so they'd go back and they'd shampoo and they'd have to repeat but as now when people are washing hair much more often and you don't have that amount of product it's completely unnecessary so we've managed to get the default advice now in the training qualifications to shampoo once okay. and on also the products. They only say repeat if necessary and mostly it isn't necessary. When we're sort of going to the hairdressers now, are we able to sort of ask if they are sort of a sustainable business or is there some sort of place we can look online to, to see where we can go? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we set up an eco hair and beauty website. So it's just ecohairandbeauty.com. And on there, we've got a sustainable salon locator. So you can click on the map and it will tell you the nearest salon that's got our sustainable salon certificate. Fantastic. And if they don't, you can just go to your hairdresser and say, why didn't you sign up? If you type in sustainable salon, mm. you'll, you'll come to us, I think, pretty well straight away. Fantastic. And do you know how many salons and businesses you sort of impacted with this project? Is there a number that, that you uh, have in mind? Yes, there is. <laughs> so we've got over 2,500 sustainable stylists now. Fantastic. Quite a few of them did it through their training colleges, but a lot did it once they're in the salon. And I think close on um, somewhere between 80 and 100. I'm not quite sure how many sustainable salons we have. That's in the UK, but if we include internationally, because also quite a few picked it up from other countries oh, yeah. it's 135 amazing that's brilliant I'm gonna have to do a bit of uh, research on my own hairdressing sort of habits where I go and, and, and what they do as well I'm pretty sure that my hairdresser is sort of fairly sustainable but it, it's reminded me that it's important to look up because obviously sustainability is close to your heart uh, you talked about how you've sort of adapted your career to suit that interest as well yeah do you feel really satisfied about sort of the impact that that project has had and, and has it spurred you on to do anything else in the future? Um, yes, I that is a project that just kept on giving really. When I first started it, people were quite dismissive. Okay. You know, people think of impact, they think of, you know, big engines that go vroom and you know, fossil fuels. <laughs> but actually the hair and beauty sector has a huge impact and I get quite upset sometimes when people are d dismissive of industries that perhaps have a more female focus yeah and hairdressers themselves feel that and one thing I discovered when doing this research is they think of themselves as professionals giving professional hair care advice and so they're very keen to engage in the sustainability mm. agenda they want to be seen as experts helping to address the challenges we face as well as giving us you know good hair and so 
I found they were very keen to be part of this project. Catching them is hard because they don't have much time. <laughs> but also, I mean, hairdressers talk to so many people. And one of the things that really came through is their role in telling clients about more sustainable behaviour and introducing them to products. So, you know, I said a lot of products that are labelled green perhaps aren't. You know, they might put themselves in recycling packaging, but it doesn't make them especially green. Mm. A lot of things that aren't flagged as green are because in the way they're used, they result in fewer resources. So dry shampoo is a good example. If you use that on your hair, then you're not using any of that hot water. You're not having to blow dry And, of course, it's massively time-saving and convenient. I find most people, once they try, will use it about once a week because it's really handy. And things in leave-in conditioner can be very helpful because you don't have to wash it out. So if you've got very fine hair, again, it helps give it body. So these kinds of tips, they're in a perfect position to sort of pass on to their clients. And one of the things we were going to do, but COVID put an end to, was post these kind of tips on mirrors in salons to see if they led to these kinds of conversations. So that one we'll have to park for the moment, but I'll be very interested in Mm. that. That sounds like it would be good to come back to you once once you're sort of able to sort of um, start again as normal. (laughs) And it's also reassuring to know that my dry shampoo habit is 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 helping the environment in some small way so that's I like the sound of that that's positive <laughs> what other sort I was of, gonna, sorry go on no I was going to say I was at a, a gig a couple of years ago and this bloke came up to me and he just opened up his bag and there was dry shampoo in it he says that's because of your TED talk <laughs> Amazing. So this TED Talk, when did this happen? Did you, is this the sort of information that you imparted while you were on stage? Um, yes, I did a TED Talk. I think it's called Alum, What Hairdressers Can Do for Sustainability. And it must have been about six years ago. Okay. So quite a lot of people engaged with that. I bet. I bet. Was that a really exciting experience? Because TED Talks are sort of quite sort of notorious for being inspirational and getting important messages out there. Yes, um, it was quite a last minute thing because the university were, were getting a number of people doing sort of talks. So, um, yeah, I got myself on the list. And I guess my, my biggest worry when doing this is does my hair look good? <laughs> because I'm thinking there's me talking about hair care. And actually, in my personal life, I don't put a lot of attention to it. Okay. And one of the things I've done with lockdown is I've explored the idea of can you go grey gracefully? I'm very interested in that subject. I'd love to hear more. (laughs) Well, way back, one of the myths I had to dispel was that organic hair colour didn't work. And the hairdresser said, oh no, you won't get, you know, stubborn grey out with organic hair colour. So I think this was the worst thing I had to do for the research. I had to let my grey roots grow out. And then we did this big event... And the hairdressers are rummaging through my hair like by Boone's looking for knits, you know. <laughs> oh, you'll never get that grey out with organic hair colour. And then we had someone in from o- o- Organics UK and they, they did my hair colour. And it was really good and they were very impressed. But then I thought, well, actually, it gets to be a bit of a burden and it's not great for your hair. It's not great for your skin. It's carcinogenic. I worry about that. So I thought, what better time? So I've let it grow out. And I was inspired by my dog. Okay. (laughs) Because my dog's a Yorkshire Terrier and her hair has lots of beautiful variations of silver, white, 
cream caramel. <laughs> <laughs> I thought she can pull it off. I can pull it off. So Absolutely. I'm not unhappy I did it. I'm, I'm quite, quite pleased with how it turned out. <laughs> That's a conversation you hear a lot about, that kind of whether it's empowering or not, whether yeah. dyeing your hair. And, and you've touched upon it already, sort of looking after yourself and, and regularly using beauty salons, whether that is a key part of feminism or whether it's sort of undermining that kind of... Well, and also if you're also sort of looking to lead a sustainable life as well, does it undermine that? But yeah. you've spoken about how you can do it sustainably and also how, you know, it's a choice as well. And choosing whether to dye your hair or not dye your hair, whatever your decision is, it's your choice made for your reasons. And that's really interesting to, to, to hear about sort of why people choose to sort of dye their hair in the first place. Yeah. It's interesting and it's something that as I sort of approach my next decade I'm thinking a lot more about as more and more grey hairs are appearing. <laughs> <laughs> so um yeah, I'm pleased to hear that organic sort of hair colouring is yeah. equally as efficient. Is beauty your sort of main area of intent where you plan to to make sort of more changes or do you have really wide interest no (laughs) not especially in fact the cruelest thing one of my friends said to me is isn't it ironic Denise that you do the hair and beauty project it's like thanks for that (laughs) it was all a bad thing I admit but um no I look for many ways to sort of reach beyond preaching to the converted okay so one of the projects that's very dear to my heart at the moment is the green stories writing project so the idea is to go through fiction Mm. so I ran a series of green stories competitions and I challenged writers to try and embed green solutions within a story aimed at the mainstream I can write articles on sustainable practices and you know five maybe six people might read it (laughs) I thought I'd really love to get those solutions out there and I'm also quite worried about climate anxiety Mm. I think it's something that's contributing to the mental health epidemic Mm. and of course we need to act but is it necessary to be quite so terrified Mm. is that necessary in order to act and let's reach people who would never dream of watching a climate change documentary or reading an article on green behaviours what's been interesting is how easy it is to raise awareness of the problems so for example in our last screenplay competition we had three um write about uh destruction of the rainforests okay now of course we know that's an issue but that doesn't help (laughs) none of them thought to actually say well what does that mean for what kind of furniture we choose Mm. or do we get a new wood floor or do we then stop eating beef or, or look at where our soya comes from so you need to tie these things to actual behaviours in a way that doesn't seem preachy and emerges mm. naturally from the plot. It's a real challenge. It sounds like it. <laughs> but we've had some really great ones come through. And we had one that was designed just for mobile phones. So it's like eight to ten minute episodes. And the premise is that suddenly this field envelops the earth. And for some reason, anyone who then tries to do anything that has a negative environmental impact feels sick. <laughs> Oh, amazing. And they can't do it. So it's very funny the way it's written. And you have, you know, people employing their cleaners to drive the kids to school <laughs> so they can feel sick for them. So it tackles issues of exploitation. Oh, interesting. Um, but it's a really great way to specify exactly what is good and what is bad and why mm. within the real hook of what on earth is going on. <laughs> so... These are ways where you can be very quite entertaining, but sort of dripping green solutions. Mm. 
done something a little bit different and developed a musical. <laughs> <laughs> Which seems to be in such contrast to what we've just spoken about. It's, it's, yes. know, it's completely different. But I'm sure there's a connection. So could you sort of tell us a bit about that? Okay. Well, this started way back when I began wondering whether all the stuff I'm teaching about business ethics actually could make any difference at all. So we all know about sweatshop labour mm. and so on. But at the same time, if you want to pay a proper living wage to your workforce and your competitors aren't, you will go out of business. So I did start to wonder how much of these issues are literally institutional, mm. are embedded in our political economy in the way it works. I also became aware that the only country that seemed to be able to maintain a reasonable standard of living, good health, good education, good culture, while living within its means, planetary speaking, was Cuba. Okay. So I thought, well, let's go and see how they manage it. Because with the embargo, I mean, they've got to survive on almost nothing. But yet they managed to retain, you know, these metrics of health and education and culture that... Mm are the same, if not better, than countries like the United States. Mm. And it was very inspiring. I kind of went there expecting people to be very wary of talking to me. I expected lots of propaganda. I, I guess I'd, I'd become subject to the prevailing view that it is a dictatorship and people can't speak freely. And the reality could not have been more different. Okay. I realised a lot of my preconceptions were untrue. And I also realised that the character of Fidel Castro embodied so much for the Cuban people. Okay. But he was such an interesting character and the people seemed to know him. I met lots of people who'd actually met him. And um, because it's quite a small country, just 11 million, it does have this kind of local feel. And I just became very interested by the kinds of stories I'd heard about him. And what I liked is that he got people to fall behind values of solidarity. And I think it really touched me that there was no real sense of Cubans are better than anybody else. It's like, if there's hunger here, that's important to us, even if it's not our country. Mm. So that was, that was quite moving. And, you know, we visited farms and organic farms and businesses. There was so much they did out of necessity due to the embargo that we could really learn from. So anyway, I wrote a musical. <laughs> As you do. I kind of started writing a story. We had a joke about it. It's like, you know, we've had Nelson Mandela. We've had films about Gandhi. What about Fidel? And what about a musical or the wonderful Cuban music? And so I started sort of writing the story and I thought, well, let's crowdsource this. So we put it as a competition. Who wants to write, you know, songs for the musical and... We had some wonderful songs come in and we had an X Factor event and the public voted on them. And then we had a local sort of mini musical and then we took it all the way to Covent Garden. Wow. <laughs> Not a big fancy theatre, but, you know, we, we did have a, a couple of performances up there. And it was just a lovely project. I would have loved to have run with it, but it's incredibly time consuming. every podcast episode I ask our guests if they have an object or an item with them or in their sort of back in their office uh, that reminds them of a point in their career that 
is particularly important to them or is just generally sort of reflective of your work and research or you know ethos and we've briefly touched upon sort of your career path and things but I didn't know whether you had such an item to share with us. I do it's a conquer. Oh excellent <laughs> I love conquers. <laughs> yes it's, it's a conquer and I think it's just because I just love trees they're just such wonderful things and one of the nice things about lockdown is actually taking some time to properly look at them mm. and just how gorgeous they are and mm. how they change over the seasons and conkers as well you can play with and they just look glossy and brown and I guess it represents nature and the beautiful planet that we live in mm. that I think that every day when I walk in the park it's just how beautiful a planet we live in and mm. I guess it's that more than anything that has prompted most of the work I do. Mm. I think that's a beautiful answer I love that <laughs> and what a what time of year for sort of conkers to be you know more and more sort of you find them everywhere now and they're sort of coming down and and I think you're right in lockdown we've been able to see the seasons change sort of yeah. maybe from our windows um, a lot of the time and maybe it's been more noticeable this year more than ever so thank you for sharing that that was unexpected but really quite lovely <laughs> what a lovely answer <laughs> I would love to talk to you more and more about all of this I think there's so much to say about sustainability and and you know but your research is fascinating and and I'm looking forward to sort of hearing more and, and seeing more about what you get up to over the next sort of year or so if any of our listeners want to find out more about what you're doing you've already mentioned the hairdressing website but yeah. if they if they're interested in your research or what you're up to where can they find you online well the green stories website greenstories.org.uk has got all the stuff on that project and if you just type in Denise Baden <laughs> you'll, you'll come up with my university website that's got most of the projects I'm involved in okay excellent nice and simple <laughs> it's been so lovely to chat to you Denise and um, hearing about your work I, I always end the podcast with a very important tea-based question and since you're not drinking tea today I don't know <laughs> if it will be sort of very relevant at all but I'll, 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 I'll give it a go anyway um, if you're at the hairdresser what would be your sort of refreshment of choice because often we find when we go to hairdressers they sort of say would you like a cup of tea or something what would be your ideal sort of refreshment when you're getting your hair done well it's quite boring but it is fairly the standard cup of tea usually <laughs> <laughs> fail safe and and sort of, is that eco-friendly enough for you do you think sort of having a cup of tea is sort of a well okay um the milk isn't very eco-friendly. <laughs> milk isn't very eco-friendly. I tend to um, have a lot of herbal teas as well, and okay. I'm a convert to red bush, which I oh, quite okay. like. Yeah. But yeah, I do like your bog standard cup yeah. of tea. <laughs> I don't think you can. I don't think you can beat that either, personally. Yeah. Even if there's prosecco on offer, sometimes I might just be like. No, tea's fine, thank you. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll see what my hairdresser has to offer next time I'm there. Yeah. Um, but thank you so much for joining me today. Pleasure. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you to Denise for speaking to me today. For more information about Denise and her projects, head to the University of Southampton website and search for Denise Baden. If you want to hear more stories from our remarkable researchers, then make sure to subscribe to this podcast. You can listen back to previous episodes in this series at any time. I'm Jo Fisher. Thank you for listening. This has been a podcast from the University of Southampton.